problem with having a head so large it has its own gravitational pull is you can um, break these things really easily, uh, and that's what just happened. Um, all right, so excited to be with you all this morning, uh, especially with my little grandson Capsicum here as well, so uh, very good to have him here for the first time. I know, it's exciting. So uh, anyway, loving that. All right. We are up to the final passage of John together this morning after two years of journeying through the gospel together. Now, we have the final five verses of the whole book this morning. Now, we do have one more John sermon next week, uh, and that is because I'm going to summarize the gospel of John next week to finish. Uh, The longest sermon ever recorded went for 72 hours, and we're going to break that next week, so Everyone's excited, right? Uh, No, no, we'll make it a concise summary just to bring out the major points. Uh, So come along just to finish off the Gospel of John. All right. Let's just pause for a moment. I want some serious thought here. What is your vision? I genuinely want you to think about this. What is your vision of the perfect church? What would it look like And how would it function? I want you to think about that just for a moment. Your vision, think about it right now, of the perfect church. What are you looking for? And then I'm going to share mine with you in a second. A little bit of thought. We all thinking about it? The perfect church. All right, here you go. Here's mine. What would the perfect church look like? In my vision... There are no spiritual gifts, there is no prophecy, there is no speaking in tongues, the perfect church. Now before you either walk out or simply decide that Sam is a cessationist uh, and you must immediately find another church, I am simply sharing the Bible with you. So if you have your Bible, open up to 1 Corinthians 13, and we're just going to read 8 to 13. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through to 13. Here's what it has to say. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only as a reflection, as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Now bear with me, church, gifts are given for the building up of the body. That's what the Scripture tells us, gifts are given for the building up of the body. But when we behold Jesus face to face, the building is finished. No more nails required, no more scaffolds needed. 
No more gifts, no more prophecies, no more tongues, no more gifts of knowledge, all gone because in an instant we will be transformed into the likeness of the Jesus whose glory we behold. Job done. And Paul says all those other things are necessary at the moment to move us towards the image of Christ, to build the body, but in that perfect church, when we are directly with Christ, our head, we don't need them anymore because we have Jesus. Oh, church, is that not your vision of a perfect church? It should be. When we are directly with Christ, our Lord. Now, Paul's point in this is that the Corinthian church had been arguing about the gifts. And in arguing about what was really important, what was necessarily needed. And Paul's point is that gifts will come to an end, but love never ends. Love will simply be more fully realized in eternity than what it is now. So love will increase while other things cease. Following that logic, I put it to you, church. The mark of the most mature church is not the most miracles, not the most tongues, not the most prophecies, but where the love of God is known and we are known as his disciples by it. Right? That is a mark of a church moving in great maturity. As Paul says earlier in the same chapter of Corinthians, if I speak in angelic tongues without love... I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I prophesy without love, I am nothing. So the perfect church must first and foremost be loving. Now we have to understand what that means, doesn't it? Does love mean tolerating one another's sin? Does love mean accepting every teaching and belief out there? No, of course not. Love means the love of God which means holding to his word, correcting, rebuking, encouraging one another and growing in righteousness. The true love of God enacted in his people. So, before anyone in the church wants to have an arguing, argument about continuationists versus cessationists, are tongues angelic or are they a foreign language? Remember that 1 Corinthians 13 is over these kinds of issues and Paul says the greater issue is love. Church, that is what we need to focus in on. So why do I start like this? Well, in our final passage of John this morning, we're going to see what I think is one of the true obstacles to the love of God in the church. One of the things that causes both churches and individuals to fall short of the love of God that should be seen in the church. And that is the old sin of comparison. So let's get into our text and then we will see what it has to say. This is John 21, 20 to 25. John 21, 20 to 25. So Peter turned around and saw the disciple Jesus loved following them, the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and asked, Lord, who is the one that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? If I want him to remain until I come, Jesus answered, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. 
So this rumor spread to the brothers and sisters that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not tell him that he would not die, but if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which, if every one of them was written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. Amen. The end of the Gospel of John. So, last week, if you remember, Jesus had told Peter emphatically what was going to happen to him, that he was in fact going to be crucified in basic terms. So he said, Peter, you're going to be crucified, and then said, come, follow me. Now this was definitely a hearkening back to Peter's original call, come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men, that idea of come and follow me. And Jesus restates it after stating the cost of discipleship, come, follow me. But there's also a literal, simple explanation as well. Whilst Jesus was definitely referring back to the original call, seemingly at the same time, he literally says, come follow me, and begins to walk down the beach. And Peter begins to follow him. Now John begins to follow as well. Why does John follow? Well, we don't know. Maybe Jesus simply gave John that look which said, you know, I expect you to come as well. Uh, Who knows what it might be, but maybe a little clue in our passage is our passage harkens back to the, uh, the Passover meal before the betrayal of Jesus when John was leaning on Christ. That's how they ate, they lent. And John leaning on Jesus at the meal is an indication of particular intimacy. They were close. There was a close friendship between John and Jesus. At the same time, the story also harkens back to Peter being the one who says to John, hey, ask Jesus who it is that's going to betray you, which is a little hint perhaps of a particular intimacy between Peter and John as well. So in other words, our story probably is just indicating that there was a very deep relationship between Peter, John, and Jesus. And we've seen that actually fairly often throughout the Gospels, right? They are a group within the group of particular kind of intimacy of acquaintance. These are the closer friends, the friends that you want to share the details with your life with, the friends who are aware of your struggles, the friends that you ask to pray for you. There's a hint that we have that kind of intimacy. So as Peter begins to follow Jesus, having been told he's going to be crucified, his closest friend begins to come as well, automatically seemingly included in the discussion. So the image we have is Jesus following, uh, Peter following Jesus, and then John tagging along as well, going down the beach. Now, as they walk, there's only one thing on Peter's mind. Church, if you had just been told that you will definitely be crucified, and you had just witnessed the brutality of Christ's crucifixion, what do you reckon would be on your mind? Is it a fair assumption to say, 
when someone tells you, guess what, at some point in your future you're going to be brutally tortured to death, that's probably going to be on the forefront of your mind, right? So this is what Peter's doing. He's mulling this over as he walks down the beach following Jesus. And as he walks, he turns around and he sees his close mate, John. And he looks at John and he thinks, if there's anything that can bring me comfort as I face a really tough time ahead, it's to know that my brother whom I love will face it with me. Now, there's some truth in that, isn't there? That you expect that maybe if I've got this brutal thing coming and, well, if John has it coming as well, if the two of us both know that we've got this terrible time ahead, we can face it together. So there's that idea where, you know, I can just draw other people into what I'm going to go through. Lord, what about him? Shared pain, so much better. Jesus' response is critically to the point, isn't it? If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Come, follow me. In other words, what my plan is for John has nothing to do with you at all, Peter. I may plan sorrow for John, I may plan joy. I may plan health, I may plan sickness, whatever it is, it's nothing to you, Peter, follow me. In other words, Peter, I've told you what your call is, I've told you what your journey is, and I've asked you to commit to following me, and that's where it starts, stops, and finishes. Brothers and sisters, when you become a Christian, the Scriptures ask you to die to this life and its desires. You are to give up the dreams of this world and hand your life over completely to Jesus and whatever He chooses to do with it. And He allows no caveats. Lord, I give you my life as long as I get married. Lord, I give you my life as long as I don't have to be a missionary or a pastor. Lord, I give you my life as long as I get to be a missionary or a pastor. Lord, I give you my life, but my wealth is my own. Lord, I give you my life as long as I get to have children. No, no, no says Jesus. What I choose to do is my choice, come follow me. But what makes this hard? What can drive the reality of this home to us is watching our brothers and sisters around us and wondering why. The pain of Mother's Day to a woman who has been unable to have children is real. The hurt of a difficult marriage when others seem to shine is real. The way some people seem to make decisions that always end in wealth and security and yet your decisions end up looking like your Homer Simpson, right? The struggles that we face 
are real. And the temptation is to say, it's not fair. Lord, I've loved you more than that person. I've, I've read your word more than that person. I've prayed more than that person. I've, I've been more generous than that person. Lord, my life has been less sinful than that person's. And Jesus says, my plan for them is my plan for them. You follow me. Church, I cannot alleviate your pain on some of these points, but I can tell you this. The crown of glory awaits those who are faithful in following Jesus. I was once at a very small Bible college where we received a letter from the underground church in China and they were praying for us in Australia. And towards the end of the letter, they thanked God that they were in China and not in Australia. And they prayed and asked that we would not pray for the persecution to stop, but for their faith to be strong. That's coming from the church. Don't pray for persecution to cease, but for our faith to be strong. And in the letter, they then said they believed the life of comfort that we have here in Australia was a far more dangerous foe to faith than the persecutions of a tyrannical government. Man, I think they were right. The truth is that Jesus is committed to molding us into his likeness. He's going to knock the edges off. He's going to shape you and mold you into the image of Christ and that will look different for different people. Perhaps if your life was easier, your faith would have been weaker and you would be less like the image of Christ. We simply don't know what's necessary for each individual to shape you into the image of God. Tim Keller puts it so well when he said this, and I want you to really think about these words, church. I want you to think about the toughest things you've ever faced in your life. And Tim Keller said, if you knew everything God knows, you would have answered your prayer in the same way. Isn't that incredible? You think about the toughest things you've faced in your life, and Tim Keller says, if you knew all that God knows, you would have answered your prayer in the same way. Right? The one who holds all things together, the one who knows the beginning from the end, the one who is committed to molding you into the image of his son, he makes choices to bring you to that place of glory. Trust him. Follow him. And know that his commitment is the same to other people, even though it looks different. So we do not know all that God is doing. We do not know how he is shaping the people around you in ways that are right for them. But we do know that we are called to love one another. That by our love for one another, we will be shown as his disciples. Church, comparing yourself will either lead to pride as you view yourself favorably or shame as you view yourself poorly but love covers a multitude of sins. All right, this is what Paul is driving home, and this is the danger we see in Peter 
that Jesus corrects. Now moving on, this gospel was written many years after these events took place. And likely a rumor had started and spread that Jesus had said John would not die before Jesus returns. So John here feels like it's necessary to quell the rumor. This is not what Jesus said at all. Jesus said, if I want him to remain, what is that to you? In other words, Jesus never stated that was going to happen. He just basically said, Peter, it's none of your business. That was the point. Again, church, quickly take this as a warning and something to think about. But why are some people obsessed with the miraculous? With working out a date for the end times, with a bizarre interpretation of 153 fish, with Bible codes or whatever it might be. Seriously, there is a mission and it is clear to reach the lost with the good news of Jesus Christ, to proclaim the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus until he comes, right? That is the mission of the church. That is what you are called to do. Now, those other things are interesting. Maybe they're helpful to assure your faith. But so often they seem to come across as an ego trip that people can brag that I've discovered something that you haven't. Right? That's not the point of the Scriptures. If it helps point someone to Jesus' glory, that is great. If it mires them down in secondary issues, that's not godly. Okay, Focus on the mission of Christ. Now we move into the final, very great and amazing piece of the Gospel of John. The final words, and I think they are absolutely amazing. John wrote this gospel as an eyewitness to all of the events that are written here. John watched them happen. He heard Jesus' teaching. He was a true witness to all of it. That's beautiful when you think about it, isn't it? How encouraging to your faith that John was there. He was a part of these things that they took place and then he wrote them down that we could believe. But it's the final line that really captures my attention. It's the final line that draws me in. He's faithfully written down the truth. But there are so many other things that Jesus did that he supposes the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now, you could take this as hyperbole. Hyperbole simply means exaggerated speech. A big statement to get your point across. I think if Peter was writing it, that would probably be true. I think if I was writing it, it would definitely be true. I've been known to, you know, never let the truth get in the road of a good story. Well, you've got to, you know, you've got to exaggerate a story. You've got to make a big point, don't you? Anyone else here like to, you know push the story a little bit. I'm the only one. There you go. Come off it. Yeah, all you fishermen, why aren't your hands up? Come on. Yeah, I've got some wives here pointing it. Yeah, that's right. I used to think, and maybe that's because I'm a storyteller myself, I used to think that that's what this was. I really, really don't believe so now. In fact, I think this is an incredible end. If we remember... Way, way back two years ago, how did John begin his gospel? 
Right back, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. He starts with the amazing majesty of who Christ is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things, note that, all things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing has been created, uh, was created that has been created, right? Jesus is God, and all things have been created through him. Opening line of John. And now we get to the very end of John, the closing line of John. And what does he say? If you tried to write down everything that Jesus has ever done, the Word himself, the world could not contain the books. Church, who is Jesus according to John? He is God who spoke everything into existence. And at the end, John says, if you tried to write down everything Jesus has done, the world could not contain the books. Do you think that's exaggeration or do you think that's a statement about what it would take to write down the events of the one who is eternal, the Alpha and Omega, who created all things. Church, could you imagine an undertaking of writing down everything the Word made flesh has done? And I think John says, in the beginning was the Word, and he caps it off with, and if you tried to write everything about the Word, there would be no end, for he's eternal. It's a big picture of who Christ is that John wants to get across. Can you imagine, as I said, undertaking, writing the biography of the Son of God? That's the image John is getting across. John has not shown you a small Jesus. He's not shown you a perfect man, though he is that. He's not shown you a prophet only, though he is that. He has shown you eternal God, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. And that is who we believe in. And that is who can save you. Church, if we bring it back to the start of our passage, this short passage, John has revealed to us the greatness and majesty of Christ and said, submit to him and do not worry about one another. Do you know what comparison is like? It's like two grains of sand sitting at the foot of Ayers Rock arguing about who's more impressive. Right? That's what comparison is. Two grains of sand sitting at the foot of Ayers Rock arguing about who is more impressive. And missing the fact entirely that they should pause, behold the rock, 
and realize how truly insignificant they are. Of course, the gap is greater between us and Jesus than between a grain of sand and Ayers rocks. For we are the finite creation compared to the eternal creator. And as we stand in awe of him, we should be humbled. Humbled in how we view ourselves and in how we view one another. And that humbling about who we are in comparison to Christ should finally leave us stunned. Stunned that the one who measures the universe in the span of his hand died on the cross to pay the penalty of your sin. There is only one way, only one response to Jesus' majesty, to his love, to his sacrifice, and that is to repent and believe the purpose of the gospel of John. Church, Jesus calls and he calls you and he calls some of you to a difficult life. He calls some of you to a more prosperous life where you can support others. He calls some of you to health. He calls some of you to ill health. He calls all of you to be molded into the image of Christ and to use your life for the glory of his name. And he says, come, follow me. Stop comparing with one another. Stand in awe of Christ and walk after him. Let's pray. Lord, how true is your word. Should we try to write down everything that you have done, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, Lord, the task would be beyond us. But in John's short gospel, he tried to capture in brief that you are eternal, almighty God who took on flesh and paid the penalty of our sin. Lord, that we might repent and believe. Lord, we ask that you would reveal your nature to everyone here. You would reveal your holiness. You would reveal your character. You would reveal who you truly are. That, Lord, it would result in repentance and belief. Lord, we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.